Very warm welcome. I'm Roman Maddox. I'm director of the Institute. And it is very good to have you all here to discuss what the UK should do about the departments that uh, deal with the rest of the world, the government departments, and uh, particularly the Foreign Office and the Department for International Development, but also the Department for International Trade, uh, whether or not that continues to exist, and indeed the Ministry of Defense and the uh, the armed forces with that. So we're going, to, we're going to talk right across these things. It has obviously been made uh, particularly current by much of the speculation in the past, um, uh, well, since the general election, about whether or not there's going to be a merger, uh, perhaps between DFID and the FCO, perhaps between the Department of Trade and other things. Um, and even though that in the past few days seems to have quietened down, it is still a very live question of how the UK should organize these things and uh, indeed how it should organize the way it presents itself to the world. And this it didn't all kick off with a Dominic Cummings blog, in fact, the blog. Um, the, the, the Prime Minister, when Foreign Secretary, said, uh, we gave an interview to The Sun back in 2017 where he talked about the colossal mistake of separating Diffidon and the Foreign Office as he saw it then. Uh, some of his uh, cabinet colleagues at that point then uh, seemed to persuade him otherwise at that particular point but we still have to find out what, um, what exactly he thinks. So we're not, we're not going to wait for that. We're going to talk about what we think. I'm delighted to have a terrific panel to discuss this. Uh, Crispin Blunt, Conservative MP for Reigate, former chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee um, for a couple of very lively years from 2015 to 2017. And, uh, and the committee produced at that time reports on airstrikes uh, in Syria intervention in Libya and other things, and the Brexit process did indeed flicker across what it was looking at. Unanimously, I might have the committee split down the middle. Yeah, we can come on to that. Sophia Gaston is the director of the British Foreign Policy Group, a think tank here in, in London, as well as a research fellow at the Institute for Global Affairs at the LSE, and, um, and, and has worked in Brussels as well. Still works in Brussels? A bit? Working there at the moment, at the, at the moment. European Policy Centre. Okay, terrific, thanks. And Leslie Vindramuri leads the US and Americas program at Chatham House, not very far from here, and is <laughs> dean of its Queen Elizabeth II Academy for Leadership, something it's set up uh, recently, which has been a terrific success, and is also a reader in international relations at, at SOAS. So really a range of experience here. I've asked them to just talk for a couple of minutes on this main question that we've set ourselves, should the UK reform these departments now that the uh, Brexit day has passed. And, uh, and let's see where it takes it. I know already there's quite a few questions people want to ask, so we will come to those prom promptly. Crispin, let me start with um, you. Brian, th thank you very much. And uh, let me, I suppose, begin with a perspective I can uh, bring to this, which uh, now is horribly long. Uh, uh, because in 19, between 1995 and 1997, I was a special advisor to Malcolm Rifkin, who was the uh, and then Foreign Secretary, and of course in those days the then ODA was part of the, uh, of the FCO, well, sort of, um, because the ODA was, the, the minister responsible was the magnificent uh, Baroness Linda Chalker, and she was also the Minister for Africa, and uh, to a very significant degree that the ODA was, in that sense, properly independent of, uh, of direction from uh, the the, the Foreign Secretary and, and the Foreign Office. 
and uh, the level of UK expertise in, uh, in development policy was very well developed uh, under the ODA, which was, frankly, to all intents and purposes, uh, independent, although it particularly sat under the, under the Foreign Secretary. Uh, the Foreign Secretary would have within his private office, one of his private secretaries would be from the, uh, from the ODA, um, and of course it benefited from a very strong uh, junior minister, uh, Linda Chalker, who was therefore uh, sitting mm -hmm. around the table, who also had diplomatic responsibility for Africa, which is obviously where a significant amount of the uh, ODA expenditure went. And there in the exercise of policy, I remember in places like uh, uh, Kenya, for example, there were, it's clear, diplomatic and development leverage would be used um, on, on, on particular issues. Uh, I might point out that I was a special advisor responsible for everything in the foreign office except Europe, um, and the ODA, I now appear to have about five or six people doing a job I used to do in those days. Um, uh, but we obviously then had the split in the departments. And what was the politics that was driving uh, that question? It was actually about uh, the expenditure that the United Kingdom uh, made on development and that whole debate around 0.7% uh, of GDP. Uh, was this going to be a, uh, what we were going to work towards and, were, and the... And the and the whole, uh, if you like, the theological purpose of development to be about the, uh, the relief of poverty and for it not to be uh, contaminated with uh, the things as, um, uh, as lowly as the British national interest um, shouldn't be allowed to uh, uh, cloud our, our uh, 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 high moral development objectives. Um, in trying to answer the campaign for 0.7% in, uh, in those days, in the run into the 97 election, uh, I would uh, try to point out that there were two uh, UN uh, development targets. One was 0.7% of public expenditure, uh, of 0.7% uh, of GDP on public expenditure uh, on uh, development, but there was another bigger target, which was 1% net transfer of both public and private um, uh, 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 GDP uh, from the developed to the developing world. And uh, the UK and uh, the Netherlands I think one of the, were the only two countries at the time who hit that target. And I always thought that was a much more effective way of measuring success of, uh, of development, of actually seeing whether your, your public expenditure could create the conditions for the private investment and the private capital flows to go into the developing world and for to create the economic capacity uh, in, those, uh, in those developing countries to enable them, them then, to, uh, then, then to catch up. And that was a, a proper measure. Otherwise, you might find your, if your public expenditure in development wasn't being effectively applied um, in term, for, for the long term and, and creating those conditions for uh, uh, for, for, for private sector developments in those countries uh, that you would then find effectively you were, you were applying uh, a, a sticking blaster um, and you weren't actually addressing, um, if you like, the wound underneath of the, of the relative inequality uh, that those countries, for, for their, whatever historic reasons, uh, find themselves uh, in the developing class category. Now, there, obviously, there were a number of criticisms of, of the, those measures. It really depended on the definition of uh, developing countries and you could find that there was a tidal wave of private money going to developing countries who were going to be pretty quickly developed countries because that's where they were getting a decent rate of return and actually the more challenging uh, developing countries would not be getting that, that private expenditure. However, that, that's where the debate was. Um, 
Uh, but that then took us into the period of the, of the, of the, of the Blair government and then the creation mm -hmm. of a formally separated department and a separate Secretary of State uh, and then the, the division of the departments. And so we've now got to the, the period of the, 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 from 2010, the coalition and the era of austerity and we have seen what's happened to the Foreign Office budget which is that well, the Foreign Office is starving um, in terms of resources as an unprotected department in that period given the way the, the, uh, the budgets were, were managed. Um, development is now being delivered as a 0.7% of GDP um, is uh, by Whitehall standards rolling in money um, and you've got the, the two departments then uh, with uh, people looking at the system, how do we cross subsidise um, whether it's the Foreign Office defence mm -hmm. um, or, uh, or the, the, the intelligence agencies and, our, and uh, operations in areas like uh, conflict zones in Syria from the development budget. Um, and quite a lot of what has gone on in order to try and deliver those uh, wider policy objectives has led to a pretty creaky um, uh, exercise within government to try and enable those, uh, to justify those transitions under the terms uh, that would meet the, uh, the legislation in the, in the Development Act. It's uh, still the 0.7%, you mean? Yes. So, so taking money... Well, the, de well the Development Act is, is ha is the, it's got to be for the relief of poverty. Yeah. And then the 0.7% the, the yeah. is it's got to go through the... It's then what the you're describing is taking bits of money and putting them elsewhere in Whitehall yeah. while still trying to sign up to the... Um, now, uh, I still think that the 1% target is a better target in terms of the policy objective than the 0.7%. And that's, so is the public money that you're trying to put into development, are you enabling the private sector uh, globally to invest, and from the UK, to mm -hmm. invest in the developing world uh, to, and to invest in the competitive advantage that the developing world ought to have in terms of its labour costs? Uh, and that, that would still, for me, be, the, be a better test than the 0.7%. Uh, and if I was to design the whole thing from, yeah. from scratch in terms of the budget application, I would want us to make a decision about uh, what percentage of GDP we could collectively on defence, development, intelligence um, and, uh, and, and diplomacy uh, collectively within those four heads. And, the, and if it's 2.5% of GDP or 3%, or it might actually be 3.5% given that's probably where about the budgets of those uh, departments now sit collectively, uh, that it might be, if you're going to have a national security strategy, and we have a national security uh, and security and foreign policy review and defence review going on now, that actually is a, is a better uh, way of then deciding where your expenditure should be between intelligence agencies, um, uh, the Ministry of Defence, uh, development and, uh, and, and, and diplomacy, and decide what proportion of the nation's wealth you're prepared to spend on those things. Uh, clearly, there is an important. You will, you would ideally want to be saying that you're hitting the UN target of 0.7 percent. It's enabled. I would be a, a, a supporter of delivering it in practice. All right. So I, I wanted to just yeah. just be absolutely clear before I move on to the others. What what your current position is? That you, you very helpfully um, sketched it where you yeah. think it, it should get to. So you do support the 0.7 percent. I mean, I support. I mean, whether I would personally, I would like yeah. to replace the point. I mean, as a formal, seven. I would yeah. prefer replace the point seven by one, um, yeah. and actually say the one is combined public and private, and and try and get us into a try and get us into a mindset. Actually, what we're trying to achieve 
is, uh, is uh, conditions where uh, the private sector is going to be prepared to invest in countries because mm -hmm. they're not going to have their, their investment stoked. And you took us right at the beginning to some of the key themes of this, which is whether development policy is kept separate uh, and indeed has this um, target of the relief, of, it has this goal of the relief of poverty. Is that, is that still, so, is that, is that, uh, is so that your I think, position or personally, you think I would, it's not I serving as well? Would, and I'm not, I'm not a master of the, of, the, of, the, of the precise detail of the whole elements of the Act. But uh, my understanding is we need to amend the Development Act. Um, to give that expenditure the necessary flexibility that it can be applied properly um, to, the, uh, to, the, to the wider objectives of national policy. Now, it is a, plainly an objective of national policy to relieve poverty. It's an objective of national policy to enable development to happen so that the future risks to our security and the rest um, uh, are, are mitigated from having a world that is, that is very divided, equally as well as simply in the interests of, um, of morality, justice and decency is that we're, is that we're working towards helping um, uh, uh, fellow members of humanity who find themselves in, in countries where their conditions are particularly... Are particularly All right, so you'd like a, a, more, a, a more flexible, to go back to the Act and look at a more flexible goal. And it is worth saying that Labour uh, had, had a lot of discussions. I mean, had, had there been a Labour, uh, Labour or a Labour-led government after the election, they were looking at adding inequality to the poverty uh, reduction with um, really quite a bit of debate kicking off about whether that was ever going to be monitorable in, in, in some way or what that, that was going to mean for, for aid targets. So it's not um, heresy um, or a new, brand new thing to think of going back to the Act. Sophia, where, where, where are you on these questions of we have already independence, we have the budgets, we have the departments? Well, I think it's important to look at where the FCO is right now at this moment and think about you know, the fact that the FCO has really been in a period of sort of crisis on many levels since the referendum. It's, there's been a crisis of identity and a crisis of strategic purpose and intent uh, since the referendum. Obviously, lots of little bits of the FCO have been dismantled out even beyond, of course, this big question about DFID. You've got sort of trade, you've got um, the DEXU department, which of course is sort of coming home, and I think there's a bit of a relief that some of that real talent, uh, that dynamic talent that was in the FCO bundled out there will be coming back. Um, but I think it's important to, to remember that the FCO is at a really strange point in its existence. I think the question around the DFID uh, reintegration, um, there are obviously concerns in the charitable sector that this could somehow lead to a reduction in the aid budget or perhaps more importantly for them, that it would be a dilution of the focus on values as a driving force um, behind our developmental activities. I think the issue with that is that we are very much well beyond this point of a dichotomy between values and strategic interests. The reality is that uh, strategic, there are, you know, strategic interests are fundamentally already embedded in a lot of the activities of DFID um, and so, you know, to present it as this very clear-cut black and white bet between one or the other um, uh, is problematic and I think just doesn't reflect the reality of where we are already. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to inter uh, interrupt your flow here, but can you give us an example at that point of something where strategic or national interest, if you like, is 
actually sort of encompassed and what difficulties? Well, for example, the African Investment Summit, which yeah. we've just hosted here, a lot of that funding actually came from the DFID budget. So mm -hmm. there is a clear link there between our developmental work in Africa and also encouraging inward investment. So that's something that's already going on. Um, and I think the Prime Minister has made quite clear um, that he should that he does not want to see those as in a fundamental competition or attention. Um, I think it's important to note that the FCO and DFID are quite different beasts. The type of people who work there, through functionally, the type of expertise that they hold is very different. It's much more programmatic in DFID. Um, there's also quite significant cultural differences as well with the organizations, which is something you'd have to take into account um, in trying to bring them together. And of course, the question of leadership um, and the structure of that leadership um, becomes very important. Um, I think what is clear is that something you will hear from both uh, you know, uh, businesses and institutions with outward-facing interests and also from uh, organizations and institutions on the outside um, trying to come in is that the lack of a single international touch point is not always particularly helpful. And so I think we do need to think about that. Um, you know, it's, it's the way in which we organize our department, we have uh, our departments is one thing, but we have to think about how we're actually helping British interests to be out in the world and also how we can also bring the world to us. Um, I think it's very clear that the FCO needs to be resourced up. Uh, it's, you know, particularly if we are going to be achieving this idea or trying to put the meat on the bones of this global Britain vision, trying to actually bring that into something of reality, our diplomatic presence is going to be absolutely crucial. We also need to think about the FCO's role at home. Um, I've just been up in Manchester actually with the FCO, uh, trying to think about how you build a more inclusive foreign policy conversation um, and sort of starting to bring some of the cities and regions into foreign policy moving foreign policy from just being the uh, preserve of the corridors of Whitehall into something that is a fully national conversation. Um, the FCO is starting to think about that, and I think that's absolutely the right direction because there is a huge consensus building exercise that um, needs to take place underpinning uh, whatever we're hoping to project onto the world. Um, but I think, you know, there, the, I don't think that the idea of um, reintegration should be driven by a desire to increase the FCO's budget. I think the increase, uh, increases to the FCO budget should be taken as a completely separate um, strategic decision. I think ultimately all of this is going to come down to political will. If you think about what the government is sort of tentatively putting on the table in terms of big structural government reforms, you've got House of Lords, it's the BBC, you know, there's all the huge plethora of different um, uh, tasks that they could be devoting time to, do they want to expend a significant amount of political capital um, on this particular merger? And also, you know, there's a huge focus on economic and social reform. Um, think about automation and the pressures that is going to put on the functionality of our civil service. You think about skills, education, work and pensions, you know, bays, all of these different um, departments at the moment, they are all going to need to think about connectivity. So is this the particular um, battle you want to fight? So um, we do have this global Britain strategy in development at the moment. I understand it might even be in sort of a draft form now. Um, then we've obviously got this uh, bigger strategic review uh, that's bringing in defense as well. Um, 
I'm very happy that uh, this thinking is being done and that there may be a kind of overarching uh, philosophical uh, strategy as well, guiding our international activities um, in a more cohesive way. Um, but I think it is very important at this point to note that this is fundamentally coming from number 10. So a lot of the legwork on this strategy is coming from number 10. So I think this reflects the fact that our international presence, our role in the world, is deeply politicized. That is partly because uh, it, you know, it is the imperative compelled by Brexit. Um, it's also true that our foreign policy has become polarized in a way that it wasn't in the past um, around political lines and different social cleavages. So that we are actually in a new phase um, for our foreign policy. And um, I think if we are to think about how we reform our international departments, we also really crucially need to think about the relationship between number 10 and the FCO. Well, I wanted to, uh, thanks very much indeed for that. And I wanted to pick up actually just that point, which was occurring to me as you were talking, that part of the problem the FCO has had, it seems to me, is, is not just lack of money. That, that really perhaps has followed the point that the Prime Minister has for a long time uh, been doing a lot of foreign policy uh, himself or herself. And uh, thinking back to the Iraq, uh, the, the Iraq years and, and, and so on. Um, and that the, the FCO perhaps, uh, you know, is, is, uh, it's always been under threat of losing some of its role to the Prime Minister's own ability to make telephone calls, but that this has been part of what's, what's going on. Well, I think it's, uh, as you say, you know, foreign policy is a deeply political issue. Mm. The Prime Minister always takes a special interest in it. Um, I don't think it's problematic for Number 10 to be very mm. involved in foreign policy, um, but you do have a problem and I think this is something we've probably seen over the past three and a half years since the referendum, where there is a sense that the FCO's strategic muscle mm. is, is completely depleted, mm. um, and that perhaps there is even tensions or rifts between mm. Number 10 and the FCO. If, mm. if they're all wa walking in lockstep, it doesn't matter to, division, to divide mm. those and to have a political oversight to that. Mm. Um, but when you are combative, that becomes a problem. Well, we can, we can tease out some of those things. Leslie, with your particular perspective on the, the US, um, and listening to this talk of Britain becoming even more global Britain, um, and your, your knowledge of how the US organizes things, what, what, um, what should the government be thinking now? Uh, I mean, let me, let me just give a little bit of comparison on the US, because so many things that have said, been said resonate. Things are very political. Um, you know, function, form doesn't always determine outcome, uh, but I guess let me brief, very brief potted history. I worked at USAID, uh, the United States Agency for International Development, uh, in the early years after the Cold War, 1992 to 94, under the Clinton, during the Clinton administration. And at that point in time, we were housed inside the State Department, but we were independent. Um, and what you've seen actually in terms of form is that over the course of the 90s, and I guess they say the noughties, although I normally don't say that, the 2000s, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, that relationship changed uh, at the level of formality quite a lot, and actually I would say in practice. Um, in 98, Jesse Helms really pushed hard for, um, leading up to 98, uh, when there was a decision taken, there was a big push to collapse what had been the US Information Agency, the Voice of America, the big Cold War, you know, public information work. Oh, he was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Right, and yeah. um, had pushed hard to merge that 
um, and as well as the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency and USAID to bring it all underneath the State Department. He didn't succeed in bringing USAID completely under um, the State Department at that time, but he did succeed in changing the reporting lines so that rather than going directly to the President, the USAID at that point started to report through the State Department, which of course matters a lot. And then in 06, Condi Rice um, succeeded in creating something called the F Bureau inside of the State Department, and the significance of that was that USAID, the development agency, no longer co controlled its budgets. Um, so once you shift, so what we've seen gradually over time is a, is a movement for the State Department to have a lot more control at the level of management and control over the money over USAID and USAID to have a lot less independence. Now, you could put that in another context, which is to say, are you really telling me that in the early 1990s and through the Cold War, USAID was completely independent and only solely devoted to development and divorced from America's broader uh, security agenda? We know that that's not the case. So form doesn't always determine, function doesn't always determine what happens. Um, another point on that, uh, you know, obviously personalities matter a lot, politics matter a lot, everything that you were saying matters a lot. So de despite the fact that there are numerous and have been over the last several years, numerous in the U.S. context, numerous um, proposals on the table for how to restructure the relationship between AID, um, the State Department, and the Pentagon because, of course, the, um, the understanding and knowledge that the civilian part of America's uh, foreign policy is critical to the objectives that it's seeking to uh, secure, whether it's countering violent extremism, dealing with fragile states, counterterrorism, et cetera, that there's a big civilian component. So the desire for more coordination is, is I think, uni that, that sort of desire um, sits across multiple different proposals. Nonetheless, the proposals that we're seeing for how to structure things are radically different. And there's been a lot of respect amongst those, an aspiration amongst those in the development community in the United States for what DFID has done, right? People in the development community in the U.S. wish that they could have an independent department in the form that DFID takes because they assume that if they did, one could keep development objectives much more independent. One could focus on the long term despite the highly political um, a situation in which the U.S. is operating not only internally but also America's you know, unique position uh, in national security globally. Um, but I think it is a, a very significant question as to whether or not that turns out to be the case in practice. So let me just say, put w one proposal that's out there on the table and then and maybe say a quick word on you know, where I think sh things should go and for, the, for the UK, although I wouldn't pretend to comment on where things should go in the UK. Um, you know, Jake Sullivan had a very interesting piece where he said what we should really do, he was former, formerly in the, Clinton, in, the, in the Clinton administration, in the Obama administration, um, and probably would have been Clinton's national security advisor had she been elected, but a very important voice in America's foreign policy on the Democratic side. And his proposal um, has been that we need a unified national security budget um, rather than separate lines of allocation. In other words, the issue is the money, um, and that the money then gets divided up across the agencies that are relevant. And I think this, again, it gets to the question that obviously in the U.S. context that the spending on the defense side is hugely disproportionate to anything that goes into the State Department or USAID. Um, others, uh, Brian Atwood, who was the administrator of USAID when, when I was working there, has, is pushing very hard for an independent um, DFID-style department. 
Uh, I guess my, my, you know, basic take on this would be, um, at least in the U.S. context and probably in the, in the British context, is, you know, keep them as separate as you can and work for alignment um, but not management because, you know, in the, in, the, in the worst of all possible worlds, it's going to be hard to keep them separate no matter what because it's personalities, politics, budgets, authority and control. But having some degree of institutionalized independent that allows you to focus on the civilian component of your, of your foreign assistance um, and to keep a focus on the long term because, as you said, the people that work in these places are very, very different um, in terms of their expertise and their way of thinking about the world. Uh, and if you can keep it separate and, God forbid, don't have the long term people who are focusing on environment and private sector development and democracy development completely subsumed and reporting to those who are doing foreign security policy and diplomacy, I think that's, that's probably the best way to go. Thanks very much indeed for, the, uh, for that. And it, it's very interesting to me that we have this, um, I'm not pushing for a consensus if one doesn't, doesn't exist, <laughs> but we, um, we, we have, it seems to me, I'm not speaking for you, uh, an acceptance of these separate, and, and kind of separate roles, separate cultures, yeah. se separate, separate aims of these departments. Um, and we're not having the discussion that was very current sort of five or even ten years ago about whether, um, whether development was particularly effective. And I, it, to me, DIPID has seen off some of that criticism, the Independent Commission on um, Aid Impact, which reports to Parliament, uh, it now sounds distinctly more reassured about the spending that DIFID itself makes, as opposed to some of the other Whitehall department. Whereas I think in, in years past, you heard much more uh, worry and uh, criticism of how whether aid was was uh, was having an effect at all. And there was, and there has been, you know, obviously a lot of writing about the uh, challenge to the development lobby from Bill Easterly and Paul Collier and, 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 and people. But we're not in that space at the, at the moment. It seems to me there's, there's much more acceptance that DFID now knows what it is doing. So it's really about the size of the budget and, and, um, and how it fits in. Let me um, then ask you, just before going go to questions, then ask you one thing we haven't really touched on. Um, uh, which is trade. So you throw trade policy into this. Um, does it get mixed up with foreign policy, inevitably? Um, uh, so kind of leave the DFID question a, a, a bit aside, having established it's, doing, uh, it's, it's pursuing its development goals. Those might obviously be changed by any government. But you put trade into this, this picture. Um, where do you put it? Do you put it in the business department? And, and where do you put it among all these, these, the, the, these goals? Can you... You know, Saudi, our policy towards Saudi uh, Arabia, is that, is that inevitably fused with our trade, trade policy? Well, you can always find the examples of where trade policy is going to be highly controversial because the United country, States, the country fact, which yeah. you're trading is, <laughs> yeah. is, is highly, highly controversial. And obviously, it's defense exports to yeah. Saudi Arabia. Then you, um, uh, you've got the perfect storm in a sense of uh, all, those, all those things come together. However, uh, uh, I would kind of despair, actually, of the endless machinery of government changes, mm. when, uh, whether it's domestic or, or, mm. or, or foreign. Um, broadly try and take the structure you've got and make it work uh, would, be, would be my rather small c conservative, conservative answer because you, you identify the problem, you think you can fix it with changing mm. how the structure works, and by the time you've, everyone's got used to making the new structure work and doing all the workarounds for the bits that it doesn't, um, then there's another lobby that you need to change it because you've got to address all the bits where it doesn't work. Uh, on trade, I think trade sits more naturally with business and it should sit with, you know, with historically a president of the Board of Trade. Um, 
uh, Michael Hesseltine uh, rejoiced in the title of president, so was a rather powerful uh, 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 departmental leader in that point. So that, that I would I would put it there and and, and leave it there. And there obviously needs to be cross cutting within our missions abroad. Of course, there need to be, uh, and there always was. Uh, from the time I was a special advisor, they were trying to change the culture that it wasn't just the, if you like, political chancery bods inside the FCO who would be, mm. would be the f clever fast streamers. It would also be those who were the commercial attaches uh, whose responsibility was to, mm. uh, to promote the um, uh, UK business abroad. Uh, if I can just come back to the, 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 mm. the first exam question, which is uh, uh, DFID. Um, my machinery of government solution would be, to, mm. would be to build on what has already happened in the last government where you had junior ministers having cross-cutting portfolios um, both in DFID and the FCO. And I think the, the logical thing is to take that to its concluding position. We all know that departments are, in effect, are led by their Secretary of State. That they, uh, and junior ministers are effective in their departments if they are perceived by their civil servants as having uh, the, uh, the confidence of their Secretary of State. If they're at war with their Secretary of State because they're from a different position in the party or have uh, disagreeable personalities one way or the other and they're not getting on, then the junior minister is going to get bypassed mm. and everything is, is going to go to, the, uh, go to the Secretary of State. So let's, let's recognise that reality. Um, there should be a separate Secretary of State for, for each of the, the departments, the Foreign Secretary and a Development Secretary, but then they ought to share a junior minister's um, and every junior minister who has a geographic region and within the re mm. re responsibility within the Foreign Office should then own, in, in that sense, that part of uh, the DFID operation. Mm. And so through the junior minister's office, you could then try and bring, uh, uh, bring things together, and knowing that they, they, they also have to report to sep separate secretaries of state. Mm. And that would then begin, hopefully, then to infuse uh, and, and that within their private offices, they would then have uh, uh, private secretaries from both uh, both departments, and they would then start to be, be to be thinking in a way that would actually help uh, help 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 properly fuse the thinking, as well as keeping separate um, the, the long-term pro pro program expertise mm. that, that DFID undoubtedly, un, un, undoubtedly has. Thanks very much indeed for that. And our view at the Institute of Machinery of Government Changes is basically don't unless you. Absolutely have to. That work led by Tim, <laughs> Tim Durrant, who's sitting here in the corner live yeah. tweeting, but I hope uh, live tweeting his own work as well. Um, <coughs> that's what everyone is saying. Um, thanks for that, Trade. Well, just from speaking to um, you know, officials in FCO and, and other international departments over the last couple of days, I mean, I think there's, there's sort of two views on where trade should go. There's some who quite like the idea of being fused with business because in some ways it's sort of actually fusing it with the domestic and reminding uh, MPs that you know our role in space and engagement with the world is has very strong domestic links as well. There's others for whom um, who fundamentally see trade as inseparable from diplomacy and therefore would like to have a bit more oversight and alignment with the FCO. I mean I think what's very interesting is to think about the a visit we had last week from Secretary Pompeo, uh, where he sort of gave some rope uh, for the Brits to climb down on Huawei, where he was very much separating the trade negotiations from this diplomatic dispute. So, you know, and that, that to the Prime Minister's great relief, of course. Um, I think 
it, it, we absolutely should be clear that trade can be used as a tool of diplomacy and you know certainly if you think about the experience that Australia's had in negoti negotiating its trade agreements with China, um, there, there has been an ongoing dialogue as part of that about human rights and so on. There's all sorts of environmental, animal welfare um, and human rights uh, clauses within these trade agreements that can be, um, there can be room for influence on those. What I'm probably more interested in as well on, from, in terms of the thinking um, of government here about trade is, is actually the social dimensions of trade at home here. Um, How do you mean? Well, I, you know, I think we have to be uh, very aware that we are living in a time where the kind of the argument for free trade is is in question, and there are certainly a lot of forces uh, socially which will not necessarily be pulling in the direction of openness. Um, so I think that there is a big social challenge um, around, you know. Well, Brexit's one of those. Well, indeed, and I think, you know, if the, gov the government kind of, you know, has this idea that we're just a naturally buccaneering, open-to-the-world, free-trading nation, uh, it's quite clear if you look at any public opinion research, as soon as you start to present some of the trade-offs mm. with trade uh, to people, uh, that they are suddenly less enthusiastic about that. So I think managing mm. the social conversation at home is going to be just as important. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, I, I spend my time working on the U.S., so I obviously think that we should try to keep trade as independent as possible from the national security um, apparatus of, of the government, uh, at least as a mechanism for trying, you know, having an aspiration that you keep trade, um, uh, that you keep the focus on the significance of trade for the domestic economy, um, which is not to say that it doesn't recognize domestic social concerns. I think that's clearly the case. I guess the thing that is so different in, in this context and the UK context from the US is that you just don't have the same level of consideration for how Congress or Parliament factors in. So obviously in the US, um, the, the great concern is that congressional oversight, which should be so serious on questions of trade, has um, slipped quite a lot. And that gets into questions of party polarization, which are just fundamental in the US context and just aren't, don't play the same role here in determining trade policy. So when you, you know, sort of shift that, I think it's, uh, it gets very complicated, but I would say keep trade distinct. It's a deep, it, trade is about deep expertise. It's, it's not the kind of deep expertise that I think you could relegate um, or expect of diplomats who are dealing with a wide variety of concerns and as soon as it becomes subject to you know, national security, I think we're all in deep trouble. Mm. which isn't to say not coordinated with, aligned with, taken very seriously, but it's got to be independent. And well, we haven't, really, thank you very much, and we haven't really talked about uh, uh, defense and security here. Uh, they, the military is very conscious of the timing problem that the spending review is due this summer, the defense review, security review is due the back end of the year, so the money will be decided before the aims of our defense are, are raised. Mm. Um, leading to one of the, I mean, the, the previous two, in my view, are very uh, inelegant attempts to square enormous ambitions with not very much money. Uh, we have the uh, timetable for that to happen again. But anyway, we can talk about that. Let's, let's have some questions. Loads and loads, great. Okay, let's take these two here in the front, and then I'm going to come over here. Thanks very much. I'm Tamsin Barton from the Independent Commission for Aid Impact, so thank right. you very much for the, the name check. <laughs> 
appreciate that. Uh, as, as the egg was. assuming I'm uh, quoting you or your, the gist of what you've been saying correctly. Oh, I, 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 I won't comment on that specifically because I think I have to be somewhat constrained in anything which can be seen as a comment on machinery of government changes. Uh, so I think our reports speak for themselves. Uh, having said that, I thought I'd just raise a couple of points of, of fact in relation to the proposal uh, to amend the International Development Act and then raise a point of principle briefly. Uh, in relation to the Act, I, sh I should declare an interest because independent scrutiny is written into the Act. Uh, I hope that's not part that you would propose to, to amend. A couple of points of, of relevance uh, to the proposal to amend it. There are some things that wouldn't change if that happens. So you already have aid spending happening under different legal acts. So you have the Global Challenges Research Fund under the Science and Technology Act. I believe you have CDC spending under or lending under its own act. Uh, but what you would have, even if you amend it still, is the OECD uh, Development Assistance Committee rules. And they, they are agreed rules, for example, about military expenditure. So that's another question that it would be interesting to hear your comments on because there have been proposals to change the rules. Uh, the other point that I wanted to make a principle, and it would be very interesting to hear your view as a former chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, it's generally the view, and we had an event here that, where I think the consensus was overwhelming, that more scrutiny tends to mean more effective spending. Hmm. So in the 1990s, then aid I'm spending was... Trying to imagine was, the event here that would come to the opposite conclusion. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> go, 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 go. But, uh, going, going back to your, your time as special advisor, at that time, the scrutiny of aid was done through a subcommittee of the Foreign Affairs Committee. So how could scrutiny be as effective in ensuring... Um, effective spending of aid if there were to be any kind of merger of international departments involving aid spending and, and foreign affairs. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, the Act, the rules, changing the rules and scrutiny. Thanks. Hi, I'm Miranda Curtis. I'm triple-hatted in this room, so I'm a trustee here at the Institute. I'm lead non-exec director on the Foreign Office Board and I also chair CAMFED, which is a major DFID grantee delivering education and economic empowerment to young women in Africa. Mm. One of the questions that I wrestle with is that apart, other than the sort of granular issues we've been talking about, about whether DFID and FCO should come together or where trade should go, one of the questions that seems to be really important is where is the guiding intelligence going to sit in this coming era when we have to redefine and rearticulate Britain's presence in the world and its relationships and its trading relationships in particular? Who is actually going to be deciding in a resource-constrained environment the allocation of financial and human resource um, against geopolitical um, uh, objectives? Because I'm not seeing that that central guiding intelligence is clear uh, that will allocate and will cut through the departmental turf wars. And then one just a small second point is that it's very easy for us to focus on machinery of government and strategic issues at the Whitehall and Westminster level. I think it's very important to think about how those translate into reality in the rest of the world. If you're the High Commissioner in Malawi or you're the Ambassador mm. in Panama, you're dealing with every aspect of diplomacy and aid and trade and security and defense every day of the week. And it's often incredibly difficult to deal with the different departments making different demands on you with different uh, uh, amounts of resource available. How do we resolve those conundrums to make sure that Britain's 
foreign and interna uh, international presence is delivered most effectively um, in the coming years. Great. Thank you very much indeed. Who decides on the money and goals and, uh, and beyond Whitehall? Do you want, do you want to start? Um, uh, parliamentary scrutiny is always a, uh, interesting questions about how effective um, select committees are uh, at, at, at doing, their, doing their work overseeing their, their departments. Uh, and one can only, I mean, I, just to give an example, the, I think the biggest DFID program is on girls' education in Pakistan, from uh, and going out there and then seeing, uh, hearing the criticism of that program from admittedly private sector providers who were looking at uh, the quality of education they were giving and totally scornful about the ability of the uh, Pakistani state sector who we were supporting to actually effectively deliver girls' education as raised on Oh, hello. I wonder whether it sounds to me as though this is an area that actually ought to be looked at um, much, much more closely in terms of its effectiveness of delivery, the delivery of that of the biggest programme on the ground. And we're, we're you know, quite rightly very proud of the uh, objective we have of improving girls' education around the, uh, around the world. But it would be a bit of a problem if we then discovered we had uh, poured money into a programme where basically the teachers didn't turn up for work most of the time, um, which was the, 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 the suggestion uh, being made to me. But if um, and, and do select committees have the resources to get down to drill down into across the piece to discover where those, those uh, things are going on? Um, will depend significantly on the energy and focus of the uh, of the committee chair and the enthusiasm of the uh, of, uh, uh, of the members. So to have scrutiny reinforced by commissions um, such as yours is essential, uh, because then you've got, then you've got a. Yeah, uh, so, and they can actually, you can also hold the scrutineers to account if they're, if they're not doing an effective, uh, uh, an effective job. And given the size of the budget that's going to get spent on, continue to get spent on uh, development, um, uh, however machinery government changes go, there needs to be scrutiny both independently um, and properly written into, the, written into the legislation. Yes, I wouldn't want to, I certainly wouldn't want to, uh, to change that, and whether it's coming from the National Audit Office or whether, as, a, as a body, or whether it's coming from independent commissions, or whether it's coming from uh, Commons committees, uh, parliamentary committees themselves, then uh, uh, I would agree with the general principle that scrutiny is a uh, scrutiny is a good thing. Uh, you can see where things get opaque um, in terms of the objectives that. that uh, gay, I mean, sorry, gay, going to the, the issue of the Act and, and the amendments of the Act and how you amend the Act and then you run into OEC def definitions and then you run and then and so you're dealing with a kind of if you're uh, into a free gift for lawyers at some point then to be able to revisit this at some stage and and, and bring cases that uh, the government is not meeting the objectives it set itself under, under the legislation that it is uh, that it's, that it's caught itself up in. Um, uh, now I appreciate that that's the objective of, of much of the of the development community, saying let's let's make sure that they mm. can't move this expen uh, this expenditure around. But since we are now hitting the 0.7 percent, um, uh, and that we are, I think we need to give we deserve as a nation to give ourselves the flexibility at the margins then to be able to move um, this expenditure. Uh, to say that it can actually be deployed in a more intelligent way. And uh, I don't think that, I think the stovepiping at the minute is not an intelligent use of British resources, uh, which would then. Stovepiping? Well, so it's all on development, 
and that's on defence, and uh, that's on intelligence, and that's on the Foreign Office, and never the twain shall, uh, twain shall meet. And you've... Uh, and we'll then uh, just come to the final point, mm. then, about the, uh, uh, the, the defence and security and foreign policy review. Um, it was always the criticism, in the end, the sort of cry of pain would come out of the Minister of Defence, where I also spent time as a special advisor. This is a Treasury-led review, would be the... Uh, <laughs> um, well, uh, frankly, yes. Let's make the thing a Treasury-led review, force the government to say, in that sense, comes, this is the amount of money we are going to spend on all these heads of security, development, defence and intelligence. Collectively, now let's work out with, a, uh, with that budget um, and give ourselves the flexibility to be able to move um, money between those heads as the nation's interests require. Um, but we don't, I don't think we want to get into a place where we are now, where the where the brain that's meant to be directing all of this, the Foreign Office, is starving, um, and, uh, and mm. other elements of that, of the, of, of that makeup have, have sat with protected budgets um, in an area of, of being pretty, comfortable, pretty comfortably placed. Okay, thanks, and I think we do have a point of difference uh, from across the panel there. <laughs> um, you, brief comments, and I'm going to come to this cluster of people here. Sure. I mean, look, obviously, scrutiny's incredibly important in the development sector because you do have this you know it is is obviously as you say the the sort of battle has been won on many of the on a fundamental level with aid and development spending but it is still something that is probably going to have to be maintained that battle is constantly going to have to be rewon and rewon because there is an inherent skepticism amongst many MPs and the British public so you need scrutiny that you know both reinforces and convinces uh, your parliamentarians as much as the general public. And actually, you know, this pilot evidence-based approach that um, has, has been ejected into DFID has actually been quite successful on a number of levels. And actually when, you know, obviously we are, we are now the largest global donor of, uh, towards women's uh, health and protections and education, and, and that's a huge achievement. And when we're able to, you know, come out with the very successful results of some of the pilots we've been running on this. Um, you know, that's the sort of stuff that makes people feel good. So um, scrutiny will be critical um, on, on both levels. And I think on this point about strategic vision, I mean, we're hoping that this Global Britain strategy will be the underpinning of that. Even if we don't merge the departments, there's going to have to be some really hard thinking about cross-departmental working in the international brief. You effectively need a cabinet office for the international departments. Um, and, and you have to think as well, if you've got the foreign secretary sort of being the fundamental, you know, the buck stops with them on delivering this strategy, you almost need a kind of a perm sec of perm secs um, to kind of, you know, bring together and, and, and coordinate uh, the implementation. Of, of those visions as well. So, so that's all the really difficult things that are going to have to be thought about. And I think the singular touch point question is going to have to be crucial. I would just add something very quickly. Mm. I mean, I think you do have to start with a some sort of national security or national mm. security and defense strategy, and budgets got to flow from that. If you don't have that as a starting point, then, you know. Mm. But I would be somewhere in between the stovepiping and the it's still, your proposal still sounds to me a bit like it's, you know, the FCO kind of driving um, at the level, even if it's a layer down, controlling budgets and management. I think you've got to have some independence so that when, you know, the new, the new person in charge um, wants to do, uh, you know, 
um, America First, you still can invest in your long-term development assistance in Africa and for women and children and all the rest of it. So I think you've got to have something because you don't know who's actually going to be in charge, right? That's the whole point um, in a democracy. So I think you have to have some sort of safeguards so that certain things have autonomy they're and traction really. and long-term. Sorry. So they're not really in charge. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that they're not. That is another Singularly in charge. <laughs> Great. Let's, go, let's, go, let's come over here. Um, and we're going to finish uh, clean on 1.30. Here, here, here. Yep. Thanks. I'm Ken Bluston from Age International. And three quick points of context that haven't been mentioned. One is the reason why DFID was set up originally. And they were the, 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 the misspending of, of money um, for reasons which we don't have to get to, per Gaudem and things like that. So there's a very critical point in history that actually um, created the, 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 the logic of the rationale for having a separate department. Second is that um, there's a, a, the, the perception of the UK internationally, um, DFIDA is a huge part of that standing internationally in the respect, and especially at a moment where Britain is trying to have you know, global Britain and increase its standing in respect, what is the impact of not having that. And then the third is that um, you know, we have to look across the experience of what other countries have done with this reintegration in Canada and Australia in particular. Um, and there's, there's, there's plenty of compelling commentary around there that shows actually this, these haven't been very successful. If anything, that they've been damaging in terms of their objectives and what they're trying to do, um, both at a technical as well as a kind of a strategic level. Um, I want to just bring the question of scrutiny back to the point of um, what other departments are doing. Because we've won the argument in terms of scrutiny and the independence of DFID. Um, it, it's precisely because of the Development Act um, that we have the scrutiny of DFID, but 30% of the budget isn't spent on, on ODA mm. within DFID, but we don't have any requirement or obligation to have the same level of transparency. So is there an opportunity here now to be able to increase those obligations of other departments, the Foreign Office and Trade, if necessary, to okay. count for that, that spending? Thank, thank you very much. Behind you. Thanks. So my uh, Romilly Greenhill from The One Campaign. My first point follows on quite nicely from what Ken was just saying about soft power. We haven't talked an awful lot about soft power, although it's been implicit in a lot of what we said. If you look at the Portland soft power index, we were at number one, we've slipped a little bit to number two, but they've explicitly said they think a merger between DFID and the FCO won't be positive for our soft power for exactly the reasons that Ken talks about in terms of our international reputation and what it gives us overseas um, on the global stage. That's the first point. The second point is I was really encouraged to hear you, Crispin, talk about needing a separate Secretary of State for DFID, because to your point about the private sector, if we think about the beginning of this year, we had the Iran crisis, we've now got coronavirus, which all of which the Foreign Secretary quite rightly needs to deal with. We also had a very successful UK-Africa investment summit, uh, which was led by the different Secretary of State. Now imagine if you, if you didn't have a different Secretary of State, you've got 15 heads of state from Africa, very, very important for our future trading relationships. These are exactly the kind of people that we want to build relationships with. If we hadn't had a cabinet-level minister to really oversee that, to host those people, to welcome those people, um, I think it would have been really damaging for our uh, ability to trade and also for our, for our sort of global standing. So thinking about the long term and our reputation, I think it's really important that we have an independent DFID and a Secretary of State who can really do some of that convening. 
Okay, thanks very much. We did have Liam Fox on this platform arguing that it's precisely, uh, he was pitching for one of these jobs, um, <laughs> I think, if I guess, but, uh, but, but, but it really confuses Britain's foreign policy. As a, there, is a, there is a counter argument not entirely represented here. I'm Richard Darlington. I'm another former special advisor, although probably slightly more recently than Crispin. Um, well, I, I, given that there's a consensus on the panel on this machinery government question, I wanted to just stick up and sort of back Leslie's position on what Crispin called stovepiping. Um, I was a special advisor at both um, DFID, but before that, the Department of Education as well. Um, and I think there is a case for treating the international development budget differently because I think, although there might be criticism of where the 0.7% target came from, it stood the test of time very well. The ODI have just recently done uh, some research suggesting that if all donor countries put up 0.7, that could finance the uh, sustainable development goals. And I, and I wouldn't want the UK to be paying more than 0.7. I, I think it is actually quite sensible on an area where there is almost kind of limitless amounts of good that ODA can do. Um, you know, in development finance, we talk about the sort of billions to trillions agenda. That, that it literally is a bottomless pit of, in terms of, of taxpayers' cash that we could pile in to do good. The question, of course, is whether we do it effectively, and it's brilliant that ICAI makes sure that, that, that we do. But I do think that there is a case, actually, for stovepiping, for... Um, treating the international development budget differently because if at the Department for Education we were given a, literally a bottomless uh, uh, budget, it would not make any sense at all. There, is, there, is a, you know, there are a certain number of schools, there are a certain number of children that need to be educated. There are, however, if you look at the problems of the developing world, Britain is only really limited by its capacity to be effective and operating as one of 30 different international donors, I think there is a, a very strong case for actually ring-fencing and making clear what is our contribution going to be and making that consistent over years because this is not a project that can be fixed in the short term. It is something that's going to take decades. All right, so we, we've got comments here, again, about goals and about, about scrutiny and about, about soft power. But, again, I mean, the thrust of these questions very much supporting the... Uh, siloing, as some of us would have said, um, or stovepiping. Um, but I, to me, I mean, this, this discussion hasn't, hasn't yet hit on one of the, it flickered over here for a bit, on, you know, who decides and how do we decide whether uh, aid goes, for example, to Pakistan, where an awful lot, it, it didn't used to, and Britain then began turning much more aid towards mm -hmm. Pakistan, saying in some, we'll keep it separate, but in some sense this is in, in more in our national interest than in other places. So as last thoughts, and these are going to be micro thoughts, um, and just uh, actually last, last, last thoughts in, in response to that. Let's go this way along the, 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 the panel. Who, who, who decides? I mean, it will pick up one of these points yeah. if you want. But they, I, they, mean, I they, guess they, I want to pick up one, of the, yeah, one on. of the points in the audience about soft power. And it, uh, I've forgotten who it came from. But um, the idea that, one, that Britain needs to look elsewhere. And I think, you know, it, it does make it, it seems appropriate um, when you've got limited resources, which all countries do. Um, to look at others in a similar position and to, to think about how you want to have impact. And so looking at uh, Australia, Canada, any number of countries um, strikes me as an incredibly important exercise at this point in time for the UK. Um, it's very hard, you know, I love drawing comparisons with the US because it's interesting um, for many people for many reasons, but I don't think it's a really very good comparison for the UK right now. 
Um, so, but yeah, uh, the, the stove piping question again, I think, I think the argument that was made in the audience that, you've, that there needs to be the ability to have long-term traction um, and have that independent role, especially given the UK's role in the world, um, is I think tremendously important. Um, two quick points. I don't necessarily think that the um, Australia merger is universally regarded as a failure. It was actually um, completed within six months um, and was quite an extraordinary act um, in and of itself. But also, you know, we have to remember Australia's international role is incredibly different to ours. The vast majority of their military operations are actually peacekeeping operations in many of the areas where they provide development assistance, like East Timor and so on. So, you know, the, it's a very different paradigm in which they're thinking. Um, and on soft power, I mean, this is such, this is another fascinating example of questions about departmental spread. So soft power, you know, the vast majority of the institutions on the front line of soft power, cultural institutions, so on, looked after by DCMS. Yet soft power is looked after in the foreign office. So there's a constant um, tension and battle going on there as well. I think the counter argument on, you know, us, you know, the different thing would be bad for, the merger would be bad for soft power. And certainly the line from number 10 will be, we are not getting rid of those things, we're just embedding them. We're embedding values and, you know, this kind of thinking being a force for good in the world. This is something you're constantly hear the foreign secretary saying now. We are embedding that at the heart of government rather than having as a token kind of department that's separated away from the central machinery. Whether or not you agree with that, but that's certainly the counter argument from their side. I just think we need, <clears throat> we need to avoid um, putting ourselves in a straitjacket um, uh, that just makes the delivery of the most effective intelligent policy uh, and use of our resources possible. So you go from uh, decent oversight of, of two-thirds of, of DFID's budget and expenditure, which sits within the kind of classical area, and then they put money into the uh, Conflict, Security and Stabilisation Fund, and the oversight mm. of that is, goes to a joint committee of both, of both houses um, uh, uh, the, to oversee the national security strategy, and where we were all solemnly taken over to the cabinet office for a briefing, where we were briefed to the level of, um, well, there was nothing remotely confidential about the briefing at all. It was all entirely unclassified. Um, so trying to flatter all these ex, um, a significant number of ex-secretaries of state and everything else, that they were being given some uh, access to the crown jewels as to how this money was being spent um, was, a, uh, was an exercise that backfired somewhat. Um, but we still were not able to properly exercise scrutiny over how this money um, was being spent, which was a, a significant amount of, uh, of, 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 of dif DFID money. And it's sort of where you, then we're, not, we're just not doing the thing, uh, in that sense, the scrutiny role intelligently. But let's not then, uh, let's give ourselves the flexibility where the 0.7%, which is something uh, internationally we can quite properly take huge satisfaction in, in, the, in the way over the last... Uh, years it has turned us into a development superpower where the, the um, I would defend the, you know, the ODA was a pretty good organisation in its day and had, had very good expertise within it and existed within the Foreign Office. Let's get some, do, some degree of melding. Let's, uh, my suggestion would be to do it at the junior ministerial level um, so, that the, so those departments are working together and that we give ourselves flexibility at the margin that we can via uh, resources where it's sensible to do so and where you give yourself at least definitions that are flexible enough um, not to be the enemy 
uh, of decent intelligent application of British resources to a, a wider policy objectives around which we can all share um, the, you know, like the, the, uh, the morality and, and, and proper intentions of that policy, um, which I'm sure are objectives that, uh, that most normal people ought, uh, ought to share and would have um, a much, would command a public support rather than a, um, a very narrow nationalistic idea that you can just spend in, entirely uh, in the UK's interest and somehow that uh, that expenditure is blind to the, what's happening in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a pretty much a minority opinion and one that um, can be held down. Well, look, thanks very much indeed for this. We could go on. Indeed, we, we will go on in other events. And as I said, this followed um, uh, a speech and a discussion with Liam Fox who had a very different uh, view, both of the machinery and the purposes of, of, of these things. To me, I mean, we, we, while we've, uh, there's been a move very much against uh, any kind of merger, we've left out there the questions of the, the goals of, uh, of development aid and the scrutiny of it. And if you think of, of just the controversy around the government's attempt to develop a developed country, if you like this one, and whether a high-speed uh, rail line is worth it and whether if you put money up and, um, in Sunderland it's worth it or not, um, if you think, and, and we can, it's so much easier to scrutinize what is happening uh, at, at home, um, these questions are not going to go away. Um, thank you very much indeed for coming. Thank you for the excellent questions and thank you to the panel.